Good morning. We are in John, approaching the end, only a few more months left. And we do a whole chapter today, so you'll be one chapter closer at the end. And today's sermon is John 17. Uh, most Bible, English Bible translations have this chapter titled The High Priestly Prayer, Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, or something like that. Jesus doesn't actually refer to himself as a high priest in this chapter, but what he's doing in this chapter is very much the type of thing uh, the high priest in the Old Testament would have done for Israel. And we'll talk about that. But first, some introduction and review. Introduction to me, my name is Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and it's my privilege uh, to come preach this morning as part of that. It's great to see you all here this morning. And then uh, some introduction and review of John. So where we are in John, this is the end of what's commonly called the upper room discourse. So Jesus and his disciples uh, ate their last supper meal in an upper room in a house. And that started in chapter 13 of John, 12 or 13, I think 13. But chapter 13 of John is what you typically think of the upper room where they eat the meal, uh, Jesus institutes communion, Judas betrays, uh, is said that he's going to betray Jesus, he leaves, Jesus makes it clear to the other disciples that Judas is the betrayer, and most of the other Gospels then move from that into the Garden of Gethsemane. John has a few extra chapters where Jesus, after doing that, does some more teaching, and now he's going to pray for the disciples. In Mark, we see that they actually also sang some hymns before they went out. Uh, that is not in John. So next week in John, we'll see them go to the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and more of what you typically think of happening in the last week of Jesus' life. But this is a really cool prayer that Jesus prays. It's the longest prayer in the New Testament, second longest in the Bible. Uh, if you're wondering, Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple in Kings and Chronicles is the longest. But it's really cool. It's divided neatly into three different sections. First, Jesus prays for himself. Then he prays for the disciples that are with him there in the room. And then finally, he prays for all believers who are going to believe in the future, including you and me. So we're going to break it up uh, in those three sections. And two things. One is to keep in mind Jesus' attitude during this prayer. It can be easy for us, uh, rightly so, based on other parts of the Gospels, to think of Jesus during this time of being filled with sorrow, fear, anxiety about the death he's about to die on the cross. And that's true. Those things were present to some degree. We see that in Gethsemane when he prays, and uh, when his fear becomes so intense that he's sweating blood, when God has to send an angel uh, to encourage him both spiritually and emotionally, but also to like physically stabilize his heart so his heart doesn't fail and he doesn't go into cardiac arrest in the garden and die uh, before he's on the cross. But that is not Jesus' attitude here. It's going to be, but it's not his attitude here. So the last verse from last week, John 16, Jesus has been talking to the disciples about challenges and persecution they're going to face. And then at the end of that, he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the attitude he has going into this prayer in 17. The fact that he has overcome the world. 
Also, from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus' death and uh, why he went through this, what he was experiencing. But here, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Many reasons, but one of them was for the joy that was set before him. There was a reward waiting for him on the other side of death once he rose from the dead. And these two things are a picture of what Jesus' attitude here is in John 17. This idea that Jesus knows that he's already overcome the world and that there's a joy set before him that he's looking forward to. You'll see as we go through John 17, Jesus never actually directly mentions his death or his crucifixion. He only talks about what's going to happen afterwards, that he's going to go to the Father, that he's going to be with the Father, he's going to receive glory from the Father. So he's talking about his death and his resurrection, but he's doing it not talking about this side, the pain and the suffering. He'll do that later. He certainly does that in the Gospels. But here in John 17, he's talking about the other side, what's waiting after his death. So that's important to keep in mind because that... uh, will come into play as we look at this passage. The second thing is the high priest. What was a high priest? So Israel had priests. They were the ones responsible for making sacrifices for the people before God. And Hebrews, again, chapter 5, neatly summarizes the two main things that the high priest was responsible for. And the author of Hebrews says at the beginning of chapter 5, "...for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed..." to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So the high priest kind of stands between God and men and is the go-between between them. But it also says, in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's what we're going to see in John 17 as Jesus prays. The two main things he prays about are sacrifice for sin, which, spoiler alert, he's going to offer himself, as a sacrifice for sin. So in each of the three sections, Jesus praying for himself, praying for the disciples, and praying for all believers, the sacrifice is going to be the same. It's going to be worded differently and looked at from a couple different angles, but that's going to be the same. He's talking about his death that he's going to die to save us from sin. But he's also going to talk about gifts, both gifts he's already given and gifts he's going to give in the future. And those Uh, There are a couple different gifts that he gives. So we're going to now move into John 17 and look at that, but that's just an idea of kind of where we're going. We're going to look at gifts and sacrifices and do it through this lens that Jesus has of knowing that he's overcome the world and having confidence in that, even though his death is coming and there's going to be fear and anxiety and sorrow associated with that later. But also that Jesus can see beyond the cross. He can see the joy that's set before him waiting on the other side. Let's pray and then look at John 17, starting with 1 through 5. Jesus, we thank you that you are our faithful high priest, as Hebrews also says, that you accomplished the work that you were given and you sat down at the right hand of God, unlike all other priests who couldn't sit because they constantly had to be re-sacrificing and re-sacrificing But you sacrificed yourself once for all time, and then it was done, so you were able to sit down. We thank you that you are still in heaven interceding for us, uh, coming between God and our sin. And we pray, God, uh, as I preach, that 
your spirit would move in all our hearts to delight in you as high priest, to delight in the gifts that you've given, and uh, to receive with thankfulness the sacrifice that you've made for us. All right, John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, the words of chapter 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So in this section, we're going to look at sacrifice first and then gifts. So sacrifice. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. You might ask, what is this hour that has come? The hour he's referring to is the hour of his death. And you can see that if we were to take a few minutes and look throughout John at some highlights of him talking about the hour. Early in John, people will sometimes try and do things. They try and make him king, or people will try and kill him. And Jesus says, no, my hour hasn't come yet. This isn't the right time. This isn't going to happen now. My hour has not yet come. And then as John goes on and it gets closer to the end of the book, Jesus starts to say the hour is near. And now he's saying the hour has come. Jesus obviously hasn't died yet. He's still alive talking to them. But it's so close and it's so certain that it's going to happen that he can say not just the hour is almost here or the hour will literally be here in a few hours, but he can say the hour has come. The time has come. My death is imminent. So that's the hour he's talking about. And if you're curious about more of that, go back and listen to some of the previous sermons from John. Chapters 2, 5, and 6, uh, 15, and 16 are some good places to start there. But the hour has come. And look at what he says next. What's going to be the result of this hour, the result of his death and his resurrection? Glory. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Do you ever think of the cross as something glorious? In one sense, Jesus' death is the most unglorious thing that ever happened. It's a holy God being killed as a sinner. The one person who never knew any sin being killed as a sinner. It's the most tragic and unjust death that's ever occurred in history. But there's glory in it too. He takes on the sin of the world. He's able to bear the weight he dies and then he raises from the dead and in doing so conquers sin and death forever. There's glory that comes from that. Not just for the Son, but for the Father as well. And then moving down to verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus says, I finished it. Everything I came to do, everything you gave me to do, I've done. The disciples, I called them, the teaching, the miracle working, that's all been done. I've finished it, I've completed that task. The checklist is all checked off. All that's left to do is die. And I'm about to accomplish that final piece of the work. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Again, Jesus is looking beyond the physical death to the glory that comes after it. 
And he has hope. He says, glorify me in your own presence. Jesus knows he's going to be in the presence of the Father after he dies and is resurrected. It's not going to be right away. There's about 40 days after he rises from the dead that he's still on earth doing some final teaching and preaching and other things with the disciples. But then he does ascend into heaven, into the Father's presence, and sits down at God the Father's right hand. And he's looking forward to that here. His death is coming. But there's something waiting for him beyond that. So that's the sacrifice. Now, let's talk about the first gift he talks about from verse 2. And Jesus here is kind of talking about himself in third person, or second person. You have given him, meaning himself. So Jesus is saying, you have given me authority over all flesh. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What is the gift that he gives? Eternal life. And who receives that gift? All who have been given to Christ by the Father. If you're in this room this morning and you're a Christian, you believe, and we'll talk in a minute about, well, what is eternal life? Like, can you define that? Uh, presumably it means life that goes on forever and never ends, hence the phrase eternal life. But is there more to it than that? And Jesus conveniently defines it for us, which we'll talk about in a minute. But with that, who receives that? All to all whom the Father has given the Son. And Jesus says earlier in John, anyone who wishes to may come. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you have received this gift from God. And it's amazing. And we're going to talk more about it. If you're here this morning and you don't yet believe, this gift is available to you right now. Let's talk a little bit more about it. What is eternal life? Verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Not just living forever and never dying, because everyone's going to do that. Every person who has ever lived is alive now and ever will live in the future is going to exist forever, physically, spiritually, mentally. They're going to live forever. Everyone's going to do that. But not everyone will have eternal life. Some will have eternal death. Those who are with Christ, that forever existence will be eternal life. Knowing the true God, knowing Jesus Christ, being in his presence. We'll see that later in the passage. Those who are without Christ are still going to exist forever, but what they have won't be life. Scripture speaks of it as eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal torment, because you're not in his presence and you're not with Christ. But as I said, that gift of eternal life is available to all right now this morning. But that is eternal life. Not to do certain things, not to be certain things, but to know something. And not just something, but to know someone. To know God the Father and to know Jesus Christ, his Son. That's eternal life. That's what we preach here every morning. Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave that conquered sin and death and enabled us who were separated from God in our sin, in the evil we had done, not just evil acts, but also our evil desires to be God of our own life, to reject all that God would give us that's good. 
that death, that separation, Jesus conquered that and brought life through his death and resurrection. That is eternal life, to know him. And knowing here is not just an intellectual knowing or intellectual assent, it's relational. It's like I could say, I know such and such celebrity, but I don't really know them. What I mean is I know something about them. Maybe I read an article or saw an interview, but I don't know them like I know Chris. He and I are friends. We know each other. We don't just know information about each other. We have a relationship. And I don't know Chris like his wife Aletha knows him. Their relationship has lasted much longer and it's much deeper. So there's different levels of knowing there. To know Christ is not just intellectually to know things about him. It's a relationship with him of such depth and intimacy and love that it goes beyond all human relationships. All the good you have, the best pieces of your best human relationships, those are good things. Those are from God. Those are not bad. But in the end, those are just shadows and echoes of the love and the intimacy that exists with Christ. Eternal life. So that's Jesus praying for himself, the sacrifice, and the gift. Now let's go on, verses 6 through 19. Now Jesus is praying for the disciples that he had currently at that time, the people who are in the room with him. Jesus continues, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, he means Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So for this section we're going to do the reverse order, look at the gifts first and then the sacrifice. And in this section there's multiple layering of gifts. It's not just gifts that Christ gives to the disciples, but we see the Father has also gifted things to Christ. So we'll look at that first. What gift has the Father given the Son? Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And again in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And then moving down again, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. What has God the Father given to Jesus? People. That's the gift he's given them. People. 
People that he gave to Christ out of the world. People that were the fathers, and he gave them to the Son. And Jesus says in verse 10, Everything that you have is mine, and everything that I have is yours. But it's not just a gift of father to son. It's a gift of son to the disciples. What is he given to the disciples? Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is God, what is Jesus through the Father given the disciples? The words that the Father gave the Son. And this has two meanings. It means both the words that Jesus spoke in the Gospels, the different teachings that came from the Father, but also in John 14, Jesus says, I am the Word. Jesus is the Word. So it's not just the words that Jesus spoke, but it's Jesus himself. He is the Word that has been given to the disciples. And what's the result of that? Jesus says, They received the words, and they received me, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. So Jesus has given them knowledge in truth and also belief that Jesus is from the Father. So now they know Jesus isn't just some guy claiming random things. No, he came from God. He is actually the Son of God. He's actually the Messiah. Now their idea of what the Messiah is is still not 100% accurate. And it won't be till after Jesus rises from the dead. But they have this knowledge and truth and this belief, specifically that Jesus is from the Father. That what he says is worth listening to. What he does is worth paying attention to because he comes from God. And again, Jesus says knowledge in truth. Now this is both the truth of God, the truth of God's words, But again, in John 14, what does Jesus say? I am the truth. So it's knowledge in Christ, specifically knowledge of Christ, and belief in Christ, belief of Jesus. That is the gift. So Jesus is given the gift of eternal life, and now he's given the gift of knowledge in truth and belief that he comes from the Father, that he actually is who he said he was. He actually is the Son of God. He actually is the Messiah. He actually is the one who can bring eternal life, who can bring salvation. So that's the gift. Now the sacrifice. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Again, Jesus is saying, I'm no longer in the world. My time to die is almost here. It's so close that I can speak as if it's already happened. And once again, he's looking beyond death to what's on the other side of it, looking at the cross, but also looking to what's beyond it, the joy set before him. He's coming to the Father. So there's more to say about this, but we're going to wrap it into the uh, rest of this section, verses 12 through 19, continuing with the sacrifice Jesus says again in 13, Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. He says, I'm on my way to you. The cross is happening, and the joy set before is waiting on the other side. 
And I'm saying these things now in the world to the disciples. So when it happens, they know that I was still in control of that situation, that this was part of the plan, that this wasn't a mistake or a plan B we had to scramble on when it didn't work for me to overthrow the Roman government. That wasn't my plan. He says, I'm not of the world. He's coming to the Father. He's no longer in the world, and he's not of the world. He's not of the world. He's of the Father. What he's saying here is, I'm going home. Now the way home lies through the cross. That's the path home for him. But he's on his way home. How many of you have ever been somewhere, maybe on vacation with friends or family? That was a nice place to be, but eventually you long for home. Or even going to school or going to work. At the end of the day, you just long to be home. There's something about home. If you have a home where there was love and there was safety, there's something about going home and being home. You long for it eventually. You long to just be in that place that's familiar, that's safe, that has the people that you love. Especially on a cold winter day like today, you long to go home, to be in that warm place. Jesus longs to go home. He's on his way home. And he's going to talk later about what benefit there is for us that he goes home. Because if he goes home, now he's away from us. That's a sad thing. But he's going to talk later in the passage about how actually there's benefit for us in the fact that he goes home. But 19, for their sake I consecrate myself. So consecration and san- consecrate and sanctify are used in this passage, and basically for the sake of this passage, they're interchangeable. They're not technically exactly the same word, but the meaning is basically the same and close enough for this passage that you can think of them interchangeably. So he's going to consecrate or sanctify himself. What does that mean? He's going to be declared holy, made holy, set apart. How's that going to happen? His death. Now he's already holy. He's the Son of God. But Scripture says, other parts of the Bible say that when he died and then was resurrected, there was glory and holiness that he had given up He had them and then he gave them up when he was incarnated and came to earth. And then after his death and resurrection, he re-received that glory and holiness that had been him his from eternity past. And then he temporarily laid aside and then after he rose from the dead, he picked that back up. So he's consecrating himself. But also, there's a set-apartness. He's doing this. The other disciples aren't. He's the only one who can do it. No one else can. We sit here this morning and we worship a God who did the thing that we couldn't do and did the thing we still can't do. We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't bridge the gap between our sin and God's holiness. Only Jesus can do that. And he did it. And he offers us the benefit of that freely. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to come to church a certain number of times. Or take the class that's being offered. It's going to be a great class, but that class doesn't save you. You don't have to know a certain percentage of this book or memorize a certain number of verses. What is it? What does it mean to be saved? To believe that Jesus did all the work that we can't do. 
that he continues to do the work that we can't do and that he'll bring that to completion, that he'll fulfill the promises he made to us. That's the sacrifice he made and the gifts that we receive. So that's the sacrifice part of the section. Now let's look at the gifts. And again, this is for the disciples. So some of the gifts he gives were specific to the time he was on earth with the disciples. Some of them translate to us now. Some of them don't. So uh, that's also important to keep in mind in this section. So what did he do? He kept the disciples in his name. None of them wandered or strayed. None of them rejected Christ and followed other false gods or teachings. He kept them in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father. He guarded them, physically protected them from the Jews and the Romans that would have harmed them. Also guarded them spiritually from Satan and from sin and from temptation. He kept them in his name. He guarded them. He gave them the word of the Father. Both all the words and teachings he spoke, but also himself, the ultimate word of God. He gave them that. And then he says in 16, they are not of the world. So Jesus says earlier in John when talking to the Pharisees, you're of the world and the father of the world, the devil. So if they're not of the world, that also means they're not of the devil. So who are they of? They're of God. They're of Christ. So he's saying here, you are saved. You are believing. Now, Jesus hasn't died and risen yet, so that belief is not completed. But he's saying already, you're no longer of the world, you're of me. You're no longer of your father the devil, you're of your father God through me. He's saying, you are saved. Salvation is coming to them. It has come in one sense, and it's continuing to come throughout the last couple chapters of John. Then he goes on with gifts in the second half of this section. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And don't forget, he's just taught in John 16 about the trouble and the tribulation and the persecution they're going to experience in the world. So he's talked about, here are all the bad things you're going to experience in the world, but I'm not asking the Father to take you out of the world. And in fact, not only is he not asking that, but if you look at 18, what's he say? He says he's sending them into the world. Here's the place where you're going to have trouble and persecution. I'm not asking the Father to take you out of that. In fact, I'm going to send you into the world after I die and raise. You're going to be sent out into the world with the message of salvation, of what I've done, with that offer of salvation for people. But what gift is he giving? To keep them from the evil one. To sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, the Father's word is truth. What gifts is he giving here? Protection from the evil one, from Satan. And also, sanctification in the truth. Both the truth that Jesus has taught, but more importantly, ultimate sanctification comes through the capital T truth of Christ himself. They've been sent into the world, sanctified in Christ. And again, we said to be sanctified means to be declared holy. They're going to be declared holy. They're going to be set apart for Christ in the world. So they're going to be of, in the world, but not of the world. They'll be in the world, but set apart from the world at the same time. They'll be in the world, but declared holy, not on their own righteousness or their own merit, but declared holy because they believe in the salvation that Christ brings through his death and resurrection. 
That is what declares them holy. That's what declares us holy. We're not made holy in of ourselves. We're declared holy through what Christ has done. God looks at Christ, and that's the filter through which he sees us, and then he can declare us holy because he's looking at us through Christ. Without Christ, we can't be declared holy because sin still remains, and there's no solution for it apart from Christ. There's no forgiveness apart from Christ in that. Now the final section, 20 through 26, where Jesus prays for all believers. So this prayer is for the disciples, because they were believers, but also for all future believers. Jesus continues, I do not ask for these only, these being the disciples with him in the room at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we're going to look at uh, the gifts and the sacrifice, just as we have. But first, I want to pause for just a second on verse 20. Where Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So none of us directly believed in Jesus through the apostle's word. The apostle John never like knocked on my door and proclaimed the gospel to me. But indirectly, all of us have believed through the word of the apostles because they're the ones who wrote the New Testament and they're the ones who proclaimed that to others, others believed, and then they proclaimed, and so on for 2,000 years. So indirectly, we have all believed through the word of the apostles. So think about that. But also, don't miss the fact here that Jesus is praying right now for you and for me. Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for me. His death is coming, the cross is coming, he knows it's coming. He also knows the joy set before him. But in the midst of all that, he takes this time to pray for us. We're not going to look at this specifically because it would take more time than we have. But uh, it's worth your time, if you have the time this week, to go through and look at what are the things Jesus prays for us. What are the things Jesus thought, not the only things that matter for us, but the most important things for him to pray in this passage. And does that align with how you pray for yourself, with how you pray for others? Not that there aren't things not in this passage important to pray for. There are other things important to pray for. But Jesus here at the edge of his death, at the edge of his suffering, takes this time to pray for us, and this is what he prays in that time. All right. Again, we're going to start with the gifts and then end with the sacrifice. So the gifts, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And then also we praise, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So we're going to look at the, uh, they may be one first, and then look at uh, Jesus' desire that we would be with him separately. So, Jesus prays that all believers would be one. It's a great prayer. You may think to yourself when you read that, you know, it seems like in the world today all believers are not one. Certainly not perfectly one. Has Jesus' prayer failed? Has Jesus failed to accomplish this? And there are a few pieces to this. One is we have to define oneness and all being one the same way Jesus does because we don't necessarily define that the same way. The other piece to acknowledge is that sin still remains. Sin is no longer our master, but we still struggle with it. So just like in a friendship or a marriage or a parent-child relationship, there is sometimes conflict and lack of oneness. That's going to be true in the church as well. And that will always be true to some degree until the end of time where Jesus completely eliminate sin and death. He's defeated them already, but they're not fully destroyed yet. They will be someday. So that's one piece. But the other piece is we have to define oneness as he does. And I don't have a slide for this, but from 1 John chapter 1, the author John, the apostle John, writes about this idea. And I'm going to read that and talk about that a little bit. The apostle says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And the, what he's seen and heard and proclaimed is Jesus. So he says, we the apostles saw Jesus. We heard him. We heard his voice. We touched him. We saw him physically. And we proclaim that to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that joy may be complete. Fellowship, in this sense, is not just, oh, let's go have fellowship, we're hanging out and we're doing something and having fun. Fellowship implies a shared purpose and a, share, a shared purpose, a shared goal, and also a shared means to that. So, biblically, when people say they have fellowship with each other around Christ, it means they have that shared purpose of Christ, that shared definition of what it means to be in Christ, to be a part of Christ. And also that shared goal, which Jesus is going to tell us what the goal of oneness is in just a second, here in John 17. So part of the reason that there's not complete oneness is that not everyone who claims to be of Christ is actually in fellowship with him. Not, actually, not everyone has the same goal and the same purpose, the same foundation. So the world can look at what they call the church and say, oh, there's this branch of the church that's not in fellowship. And we would say, well, that's not actually a part of the church. They're not in fellowship. They're not of Christ in the same way. But also, in each of us, there is sin. And there are times where in our sinfulness and in our selfishness, we don't want what Christ has. We don't want that purpose. Even as believers, we want what we want selfishly. And in those moments, that fellowship is broken. And Christ keeps us and restores that fellowship and keeps us from falling. But that happens. 
Also, John states in 1 John, we are writing these things so that joy may be complete. So fellowship with each other, fellowship with the Father and Son. That's what oneness looks like. Fellowship with God and Christ, fellowship with other believers. And without that, according to 1 John 1.4, is impossible for joy to be complete. Hear that, Hiawatha. Without fellowship with God, without fellowship with Christ, without fellowship with other believers, centered around the cross, around Jesus' death and resurrection, you can still have, to some degree, happiness. You can still have, to some degree, pleasure. You can still have, to some degree, imitations of joy or pieces of joy. But fullness of joy and completeness of joy is impossible to have in any other way. There's a secular retailer that their slogan is, bringing joy to all families, giving joy to all families. And it's like, okay, I get what you're saying. But like as a believer, when I hear that, I think, but you can't do that. Like you're without Christ. You can't give fullness of joy because it only comes through Christ. You're offering something you can't possibly provide. You can't possibly deliver on the promise you're making there because you don't have Christ who brings fullness and completeness of joy. Only in Christ is that possible. Why does Christ desire oneness for all believers? So that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. So that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and loves them, meaning future believers, even as, Jesus says, even as you love me. So why does Jesus want oneness? Both so that the world believes that Jesus is the Christ, that he was sent by God, that he is the Son of God, but also so that the world can see that God loves us in the same way that God loves Jesus and that that love is available for people. That's the goal of oneness. As we think about oneness in the church, both within Hiawatha, unity and oneness, and within the capital C church, the worldwide church. Is that our goal? Do we want that so that the world would believe that Christ is from God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the only means of salvation? Do we want that so that the world will see that God and Christ love us and love us specifically in the same way that the Father loves the Son? If not, then our goals for oneness are not God's goals for oneness. Our goals for oneness are not Christ's goals for oneness. Also, Jesus desires that those who have been given him by the Father, that all believers would be with him where he is. Where is he right now? He's in heaven at the right hand of God. Jesus desires that we would be with him. Why? To see his glory that was given him because he was loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. So I have a brother, and he's married and has kids, and they don't live in Minnesota. And my parents recently went to visit them and celebrate an early Christmas. And their kids are young kids. And so my parents drove, and when they were driving, uh, they have iPhones and did the like track my phone thing so that the grandkids could see how close they were. So when the grandkids heard, yeah, Grandma and Grandpa will be here today, Immediately, I wasn't there, but my brother relayed this story. Immediately, they got up and went to look out the front window so they could see 
my mom and dad when they arrived. And then my brother was like, no, it's going to be like six more hours. They're not coming now. And the kids were like, okay. And then went back to looking out the window. And then would ask, are they here yet? And my brother would show them on the phone, no, they're only in Wisconsin. They're still five hours away or four hours away. But there was that eagerness, that desire. They wanted, my mom and dad, they wanted their grandparents to be with them where they were. And when they finally got there, what'd they do? They showed them all the things like, oh, look at this cool thing in the house that's different than when we were last here. Look at what the dog did that was so funny. Look at this neat project, art project that I made. Look at this cool thing we did in the backyard. Jesus' desire here is similar to that. Now, he's not a child, he's God, so he knows when that will be accomplished. But there's that sense in which Jesus is looking out the window, eagerly awaiting our arrival. He wants us to be there. And it's similar. He wants us to be there so he can show him, ooh, ooh. He wants to show us, ooh, look at this piece of my glory that you haven't seen before. Oh, look at this. Isn't this so glorious? Look at this thing that I did. Look at how the Father loves me. Look at how that love was manifested on the cross. Look at this cool piece of my glory. He wants to show us all these things that we haven't fully seen, that we can't fully see. He eagerly awaits that day. Jesus wants us to be with him where he is. He wants to share that love and that glory in a more full and tangible way. We share in that now. That's part of salvation. We share in that now. And we'll share in it forever. But when we're with him physically, and Scripture doesn't explain exactly what this means and how it'll be different, but we'll share in it in ways that we don't right now. And we don't know what that means because God hasn't told us what that means. But we'll see Christ someday and then we'll understand. And we'll be like, oh, wow, this piece, I never realized that before. That's so cool. Oh, wow, this piece, I never realized that. Oh, wow, your love, there's this piece of your love. I thought I understood your love. But now I see I only understood bits and pieces of it. Here's so much more of it that I didn't understand. Finally, the sacrifice. Again, the same one, Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. Uh, the last verse of this passage, Jesus says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How has Jesus made known the name of the Father? In many ways so far in his ministry. But how is he about to make it known? Through his death and resurrection. And how does he continue to make it known today still through his death and resurrection? That's why we preach that every Sunday at Hiawatha. There are other things Jesus did besides dying and raising from the dead. There are other teachings Jesus taught besides teaching specifically about his death and resurrection. And those teachings and those things are worth looking at. But those are not the core way that Jesus has made known the name of the Father and continues to make it known. The core way is through his death and resurrection. So that's why every week you hear about his death and resurrection. And then various weeks you may hear about other things. But we want to make sure we hit that core every week because that's the primary way. That primary sacrifice, once for all time, made by the greatest of all high priests, is the way that he makes known his name, is the way he makes known salvation. Is the way he makes known the love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Father has for the world, the love that the Son has for the world. It's like John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him 
will not perish but have eternal life. That's it. That's the core. That's the way God continues to make himself known. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have made yourself known, that you continue to make yourself known. I pray, God, that we would never tire of seeing the cross and the empty tomb, that we would never tire of your death and resurrection. Thank you, God, that you have given gifts and you have given yourself as an ultimate sacrifice. I pray, God, that we would uh, continue to receive your gifts with thanksgiving and to be thankful for your sacrifice, which is also a gift, the salvation that results from it. Thank you. Amen.